Well, amen and amen. That worship song really highlights the strength of God and how he, he undergirds us. And we need that, don't we? What a great way for us to exhort each other towards the truth by singing truth together. And that is directly from a passage in Isaiah. So that is incredible and fantastic. I just get so energized by worshiping corporately. It's one thing to worship in solo by yourself, and that is uh, recommended and what we should be all about. But it's another thing to gather for corporate worship. So what an incredible blessing we have as a church to do that together. A couple things that are going on in the life of our church that I want to mention, mention to you before we look into 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, we have the opportunity uh, where we're hosting an inductive Bible training seminar, uh, and that is coming up this Saturday. You'll look at it, you'll notice it in your bulletin. This Saturday, the women are going to be instructed under a precept leader. And if you know anything about the precept ministry, it is all about inductive Bible study. And in college, that was probably my number one area I studied was inductive Bible study, which is studying God's Word and learning how to study God's Word by asking who, what, when, where, and why, and digging deep. And so for you women that want to continue to dig deeper, come and come on the 27th, this Saturday, 9 a.m., to 5 p.m. It's normally $75 for this training seminar, but it is $20 um, per person coming up this Saturday. See Joanna Hedges for more details and or our church office. Also on Sunday, I've been told that we have a wonderful tradition uh, that is a seminar offered through the student ministries and the leadership of Randy Carlberg. It's called True Love Waits. You'll see the insert in your bulletin, and it's all about personal purity and holiness as uh, we're trying to equip teenagers in our midst and in our families to um, be pure and be holy and to be the next generation that's raised up in the church for the living God. And so we want to promote that and uh, stand behind this wonderful ministry that's coming up. It's Sunday, February 28th, 5 to 8 p.m. in the chapel. And at this time, I want to invite up John Patton. John Patton oversees, if you don't know him, he and Ani are wonderful uh, members of our body, and they oversee um, incredible ministries. One ministry that John's going to talk about right now. Thank you, Thomas, for the tremendous example you are to us of a warrior for Christ. And thank you to my friend Steve. He's going to help me with the uh, brief announcement here. But he also named Warriors for Christ Boot Camp. And we appreciate that uh, concept. It can come with much more power from a man who's been in the military. Warriors for Christ Boot Camp, I want to read to set this up from Hebrews 12, verse 7 and 11. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? No discipline, excuse me, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained in it. Warriors for Christ is a man camp for dads and sons. And uh, as I told a fellow between services, if you're a grandpa and you've got a, a grandson that needs to come and you're his only r way to get there, you bring him. We want that to happen for that young man. First, some uh, facts about Warriors Boot Camp. The number nine, Steve's going to help you see that. The number nine, nine days of hard work. Developing practical work skills, living in the wilderness, digging into and applying scripture to life. Then, the number two. He's good at this, isn't he? <laughs> two locations. One in Moose Pass. That'll happen the last week in May. And then one off the Denali Highway, which happens the second week in July. It gives you two choices. Now, Steve, find the number ten. Each camp, 10 dads, 10 sons or grandsons, a community of men working and adventuring 
shoulder to shoulder, devouring mountains of home-cooked food, digging ditches, building walkways and outhouses, getting dirty, shooting firearms, hiking, fishing, hauling heavy stuff with our own bare hands, getting dirty and loving it, cutting wood, swimming, camping, worshiping God, and blessing the socks off of folks with our work. And the number one. Each son has one life. And dads, we have one opportunity to impact our sons to live his life as a warrior for Christ. One fine bunch of men with which to share this awesome God-given opportunity. Now that said, let me put a man's heart... That's good, Steve, thank you. (laughs) He's a volunteer, I'll tell you. We are in a battle for the lives of our sons. Scripture tells us that a man has the opportunity and the responsibility to bring his son up in the ways of the Lord as a warrior for Christ. On the other hand, we have an enemy, and he has drawn his line in the sand, and he's made it obvious he will oppose us to the bitter end with every resource and seductive force this world has to offer. This is not a one-man battle, but a battle to be fought by an army of godly men standing together shoulder to shoulder for our boys. We invite you and your sons to stand with us together for nine days this summer. There's a lot more information we'd like to share verbally. We have it on paper. You will see afterwards a number of us with brightly colored T-shirts. Now get this out of your way. Yeah, thank you. Well, I would commend that ministry to you, those of you who would want to do that and to invest in a powerful way, life-changing way in the life of your son. That is an incredible offering. We want to not only promote ministry to men and adults in our fellowship, but also ministry through the parents down to the children. What an incredible ministry. So thank you for putting time and effort into that, um, John and company. So... Let's pray one more time as we approach God's holy word. Father, we thank you for your truth. I thank you, God, that we can be revived and edified by your truth. I pray, God, that your word would do its work in our lives, that we would be like Job and we would see the word of God as more important than our necessary food. This is what we want to eat now, God. So feed us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I was reading in a book uh, recently called Blink, a book that was written by Malcolm Gladwell, an introduction. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is a sociologist and also a pretty popular columnist from The New Yorker and formerly from The Washington Post, who's written a couple bestsellers. One is Blink, and the other one is called The Tipping Point. Blink came out in 2005, and it argues that people have an internal computer, kind of an instinct about them, where their brains leap to conclusions in an instant. He's arguing that a lot of times people dismiss their instinctive first impression and miss the point that their brain brings to them about something. They, they just ignore their initial gut assessment about people or about life or about decisions. One example of this is where Gladwell cites uh, the J. Paul Getty Museum being approached. That's a pretty famous popular museum in Los Angeles. And they were approached by Gianfranco Bacina to purchase one of 200 existing statues called Akuros. And Akuros would be dating in the 6th century BC, and the estimated value would be $10 million. Akuros is a statue of a young boy with the left leg forward and the arms at his side. And this particular statue that was being offered for $10 million was in perfect condition. Most of the curos are known to be damaged and fragmented through archaeological digs, but this one was in pristine 
uh, condition. And there was a sheaf of legal documentation that was offered to the Getty Museum to back up where it was dug up and who's possessed it up until now, and all of that was in order. However, the Getty Museum wanted to be careful. So they took 14 months of strict and careful scientific analysis over this piece of art. They hired a geologist, for instance, from the University of California, and he took two days straight to examine the statue, the surface. He he studied it with high-resolution microscopes, a stereo microscope, and then he he removed a coarse sample measuring a centimeter in diameter and two centimeters in length from below the right knee to put it under an electron microscope and an electron microprobe and a spectrometry and an X-ray diffraction and an X-ray fluorescent light. And all of these things were being done to document whether or not this is the real thing. And they found it to be such. They said, look, it's made of dolomite marble, which puts it in the Greek islands. And and perhaps it was actually dug up on the island of Thesos, having a surface that's probably thousands of years old. So they concluded it was not a contemporary fake after 14 months of investigation. And in 1986, the sculpture was presented before the museum and the world, and it was said to be godlike in the New York Times. They splashed a four-page article on the front page about the Kuros, and it stands in such godlike, pristine, um, you know, uh, essence, and it's just this beautiful thing. But they had one problem. The one problem was they ignored a series of first impressions that were made by non-professional sort of art curators that walked through. The art curators, the one that just the people that would move the artwork back and forth and protect it, they would go down during that 14 months and be brought down into the basement and people would swoosh off the drape cloth off of the curos and the art curators would kind of scratch their head and say, huh? You know, I, I don't know if that is really something that ever was in the ground. For instance, one... One art curator said, I can't take my eyes off the fingernails. They just don't look right. They, they look too perfect. And, and one person couldn't get the word fresh out of his or her mind. It, it, just, it just seems like it's too fresh to be 2,000 years old. And one person said, have you paid for this yet? You know, it was just a gut impression. You know, too bad if you're going to buy this. Uh, so the Getty got nervous. And at one point, they actually shipped the statue over to Greece for a symposium to parade it in front of different Greek art-loving people. And one person said, anyone who has ever seen a sculpture come out of the ground could tell this thing has never been in the ground. They had an intuitive repulsion there. And they realized that it was a fake. So the Getty reanalyzed the, the documentation, the letters, and they found that there were some inconsistencies. And they also began to study different curos, and they found that this one looked like 20 different ones put together from different time periods and places. And ultimately, they traced it back to a forger's workshop in Rome in the early 1980s. That's where different curos had been created as forgeries. And, and what they would do is they would take potato mold and they would paste it over the marble to create a fake aging process where something would look thousands of years old only after a few months. So if you look at the Getty's catalog, you can see this curos because they were stuck with it. And this is how it's monikered. It says about 530 BC or a modern forgery. So in two seconds, these art curators were able to understand more about this statue than all the scientific experts after they would take 14 months. And so Gladwell's book, the subtitle is The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, Your Gut. And then it's the idea of your gut instincts that that are telling you something that you shouldn't overthink. Don't miss the forest for the trees, in other words. You know, as a believer... We've got something greater than our gut. Now, I'm not saying we should ignore our gut or we should ignore what this sociologist is putting forth, but we have something greater as Christians. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2. We have the opportunity to operate in spirituality where unbelievers do not. We have the opportunity to be discerning Christians. 
by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is a passage that made me think about discernment because it's a call for the entire body to be discerning. There's no, there's no excuses, in other words. Paul is calling the church's bluff and saying, listen, it's not all up to the leadership to be discerning. It's also for you as a body to live a discerning life, to operate spiritually in your thinking. Psalm 119 puts it this way, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. It is ever before me. I have, listen, more understanding than all my teachers. Could sound arrogant, right? Unless you understand the concept of being discerning. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You might say, I'm kind of a simple kind of guy. Well, right? We're we're just humble people and, and we're just doing our best. But if we understand the truth, if we have the word of God, then we have the wisdom of God about life and about others. We do. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So it's okay to be a simple person. But that doesn't let us out from being discerning. We're called to be discerning people, people who are wise. So, from verses 14 through 22, we are called to be discerning in four areas of life. Four areas of life. The first area is discerning how to approach other people. How to approach other people. People specifically in your sphere of influence. Follow us or read verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays any, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There are 14 commands that we're going to work through. These are the first Four, and these first four are sizing up people around you. It's about discerning other people in your sphere, specifically in your local church. It's thinking about other people's needs. You might say, look, I, I can't do that. I'm not a professional counselor. I'm not anything special. I'm not a leader in the church. But you know what? The Bible says that you're called to discern needs in other people's lives. And it, and it leaves no excuse for you to say, I can't figure out how to help somebody. Called to do it. The Bible says in the first category here that there are people who are idle. And it says, verse 14, admonish the idle. Admonish the idle. The New American Standard puts it this way. Admonish the unruly. People who are stepping out of line. We're called to admonish them. I think the English Standard Version, though, gets it a little bit better than the New American Standard. It says, admonish the idle. Or admonish those who are lazy. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is where Paul called out those who were lazy, saying, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's some pretty strong admonition, right? You're not going to work, then you really don't need to eat. And there was a problem in the church at this point in time where Paul was calling out people who were lazy. They weren't working a job. They were, they were just laying back and probably mooching on other people. I love the humor of the Proverbs on this score. Proverbs 22 puts it this way. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Anyway, I think it's funny because, because just think about it. It's a person saying, wow, there's a wild animal outside and I'm not going to grab my gun. I'm not going to stay inside. I'm I'm just going to assume that, wow, I'm so out of it and lazy that it's going to gobble me up. So it's just... God's humor there. Okay, Proverbs 19, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it up to his mouth. Proverbs 26, 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth. 
He's too lazy to feed his face, right? All right, here we go. The word admonish is the word nutheteo, and that means to put or place the word of God into somebody's thinking or into their mindset. And so if you were to approach somebody who's lazy and not working, you might want to bring Proverbs like these or bring other places in Scripture to say, look, you know what? You need to not be lazy. You say, but that person might not like me. Well, again, the Bible is assuming, Paul is assuming that this is your ministry. It's not our ministry to be mean. We speak the truth in love. But if you know the word of God, and you should, if you know a little bit more than somebody else does, then just go to them with what you know and humbly present it to them. And you might be surprised at how much things clarify in a person's thinking. You've got black words on a white page, and it objectifies the moment. You've got all the subjectivity, all the excuses that are there, and then the Word of God, which raises and holds the line for what somebody should do. And that's what the Bible calls us to be a part of in other people's lives. In 1970, there was a man named Jay Adams, and he wrote a book called Competent to Counsel. And that was his pioneering movement for what he calls new Pathetic counseling. It's not pathetic counseling. It's called nuthetic counseling. It's the idea that the word of God is sufficient for life and godliness. And oftentimes, this kind of counseling, by the way, is, is done on a pastoral level. But really, the heart behind nuthetic counseling, or just the ministry of admonition, is that everybody should be involved in this all time, at all times. Always. You know, one person put it this way. You know, in Matthew 18, you've got the the steps of confrontation. You know, you go to somebody who's in sin. You have step two, you bring somebody else. Step three, you bring it um, before the church. And step four, you actually publicly disfellowship people. It's called church discipline. Well, one person said the church should be involved in step one of church discipline all the time. Kind of sounds, you know, heavy and sober. But really, we should be in, in the business of helping each other think biblically with the word of God. All the time. It's our ministry. Romans 15, 14. I am satisfied about you, my brothers, Paul said to the Romans, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able, listen, and able to instruct one another. You're able to do it. You say, I can't do it. The Bible says you can. And it says you're supposed to, and it assumes that you will. God assumes this for us. And let me make this point, and I'll make it over and over again. If you're, you know, kind of shrinking back from this ministry, you're hurting yourself. And you're hurting the rest of us. We all need each other in the Christian life. We need each other. And selflessness, a heart that is towards other people, is the heart that moves towards people with the word of God. We undersell our ability to discern. All right, the second category in verse 14 is encourage the faint-hearted. You've got people who are idle in the church, and then you've got people who are faint-hearted. These are people who need hope. You've got people who are outright, you know, sinning, and it's, you can document it from Scripture and point things out. And then you've got people who just, they just need hope. You say, I don't want to crush somebody. And and so I'm afraid to even talk to somebody about their spiritual life. Well, you know what? The Bible assumes that you could discern the difference between somebody who's out of control and somebody who just needs a word of encouragement. And if you give someone hope, or if you've ever received hope, you know that that is a profound experience. Jesus is the lifter of our heads. He's the one who would not destroy a bruised reed. He would not break a bruised reed and he would not quench a smoldering wick. He was tender for those who needed hope. And this is our opportunity to be like Jesus, to offer hope to the hurting. Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Third category, the weak The weak here in verse 14 are people who are struggling physically. I think the scale tips more towards just people who aren't being lazy. They're not not just, uh, you know, feeling sorry for themselves. They're actually weakened physically. They're helpless or they're sick. The world would say, look, God helps those who help themselves. It's the 
It's the most often, you know, oft-quoted, non-Bible verse type Bible verse quoted in our culture, right? Poor Richard's Almanac, 1757, Ben Franklin is attributed to this phrase. It actually was born in the 1600s, but God helps those who help themselves. Well, actually, God helps those who cannot help themselves, right? That's the biblical mindset. While we were yet helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Isaiah 25, For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. We look for people who can't help themselves, and we minister to them. That's Christianity. That is the mark of being a Christian. That's what makes us stand out in uniqueness is that we're helping people who are helpless, who perhaps are maybe sinfully helpless, not helping themselves, but we're discerning, look, I don't need to beat this person up with the Bible. I need to help them. I need to help them. I need to encourage them. I need to give this person hope. Or I need to gently correct a person in love with the word of God. And then you have the overarching idea, verse 14, be patient with them all. The word patience here is the idea of being long-fused. You say, I don't want to be patient with that person. I've gone to them 16 times. I've given them all of this counsel and they still reject it. We're called to run the race that's an endurance race. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And what's, what's the next one? Patience. That's right. That's right. Patience. And we're called to be patient. If you're not being patient, then we're not being spiritual. We're not being empowered by God. And so no matter what the circumstance is, and I'm sure you're thinking of one or two in your minds right now, people who you think, man, that person's lazy or that person's weak or that person's faint. We're called to be patient. We're called to be long fused with these people. And we can discern the difference between different ones. Verse 15 is a follow-on of verse 14, where Paul says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Paul's saying here, basically, that when you admonish people, if someone strikes back at you with some evil comments... You don't get to say, well, you know, in Exodus, I remember the concept of lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand and a foot for a foot. And so, you know what? They're mean to me. Now all bets are off. I'm going to be mean back to them. That's not Christianity. That's not Jesus. That was a law under the old covenant system to keep order in a nation. This is not That Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said he is the end of the law. You know, if you're struck on one side of the face, you turn your face to be struck again. What, What are you supposed to think with a verse like this? When someone is attacking you, it's so easy to strike back, isn't it? Let me tell you how you should think. When someone says something evil to you or about you, you should remember that justice was served in the cross. Say, but, 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 but I deserve to be able to say something. Well, justice was served in the cross. Jesus died on the cross and justice was served there. The wrath of God was put on him. And so vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. Jesus did not utter a word in return when he was being beaten, when he was being mocked, when he was being scourged, when he was being crucified on your behalf. And we are to follow his example. That's what Paul is saying here. We help people that perhaps don't want to be helped, but we dare not return evil for evil. So, first of all, we are to discern other people. Secondly, you are called to discern your own private worship. You are called to have a worshipful attitude. You say, but I don't know how to do that. Or I am incapacitated for doing this kind of spiritual life. I can't rejoice always. I can't pray without ceasing. I can't give thanks in all circumstances. This is above and beyond me. I wasn't called to be a pastor or a missionary. That categorically doesn't work with me. Paul assumes 
that you can live this Christian life and that you should and that you must. The Word of God, it's given in staccato-like, rapid-fire propositions. Boom, 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 boom. That's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, I'm just going to summarize this whole deal. We're going to hit the runway hard. Rejoice always. It's a hard thing to follow. You know, it sounds sweet when you're just trying to read through the Bible and move to the next book of the Bible. But if you just stop there for a second and think, man, I'm supposed to be joyful always? That's really hard. That's hard medicine. It's very difficult to live out Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Just say, look, you don't know my temperament, how I was wired. You don't understand my emotional makeup. The Bible does. And the Bible says, no matter who you are, you're called to rejoice. On a practical level, I was reading through a book called Depression by Ed Welch. I would commend it to you. And he just plainly says, kind of on this basis, if you're seeking joy and you're seeking God in joy, then that is contra to depression. You you can't do both at the same time. Now, it's not to say that you can't be a struggling believer. The psalmist, if you were to put on a scale, you know, all of the psalm psalms and the comments that we're talking about hopelessness where the psalmist is trying to find God and he can't find him you find that about half the psalms are talking about that kind of struggle and the other half is talking about hope and joy and worship so there is a balance to what I'm saying it's not wrong to struggle but we are not without hope and we do have this command that through the struggle we are supposed to required to, obligated to, and energized by the power of the Spirit to have joy in our lives, always. Rejoicing, always. Secondly, praying without ceasing. Consistent prayer. You say, how do I do this? Well, this is not a call to mutter and mumble prayers all the time. Uh, That would be inconsistent with the life and ministry of Christ. If you think about it, he was teaching at times, he was healing at times, he was eating at times, and then at times he would go off and pray all night. He would pray spontaneously before the breaking of bread, before a miracle, he would look up to heaven and seek the Father. Paul talks about how he always had the churches on his heart and he would pray for them consistently and constantly, naming their names to God and bringing them before the throne of God. So there's an interesting balance. It's the idea that praying without ceasing is a God consciousness. It's more than just having a devoted quiet time. It's the idea that you have an ongoing relational dialogue with the Lord. You're communing with God. And so you have a God consciousness, a a heart that's yielded to the Lord, and then you carry out the business duties of your day or the obligations that you have. But as you're finding breaks within your day... You're continuing a dialogue with the Lord. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. You you begin to pray and then you get interrupted and then you pick up where you were and you keep going. And the Bible is assuming that this is part of the normal habit and MO of your life. It's as natural to the Christian as breathing. It's inhaling and exhaling and seeking the Lord in a relational way. Next, you're to have consistent gratitude. You have consistent joy, consistent praying, and consistent gratitude. It's giving thanks in all circumstances. And I want you to notice the phrase at the end of verse 18, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Oftentimes, we think of the will of God as some sort of stoic statement that's written in the logs of heaven that's going to happen. And that is the decreed will of God. And I believe in that. I believe God knows the end from the beginning and has established everything after the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. But I think specifically here in verse 18, we're looking at God's heart towards you specifically. And God is looking down at you and he's saying, look, you are called to be thankful in all circumstances. And this is what I desire for you. This is what I want for your heart. This will change your life. You know, the children's song, count your blessings, name them one by one. This is our calling. We're supposed to count our blessings. You say, but my life isn't blessed right now. 
I mean, maybe you have something like what I've been told is like a penny brought all the way up to your eye. And you can't see around this difficult circumstance. And it's just in your sight line and you can't look around it. But as you would name off the blessings of God as he has provided for you and helped you over the course of your life, perhaps as you would become more grateful, the penny would be put down on the desk. And you could place that penny in a greater perspective of gratitude. That's God's word to you. We are called to do that, to give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, we're called to discern others. We're called to discern our private devotional life. And you can do this, and you must. And then thirdly, you're called to discern how to approach public worship. Verses 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit... Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Verse 19 begins with the call to be sensitive. There is so much going on on a spiritual level that I think the church often ignores. There are attitudes, there are decisions, there are moral choices, there are theological statements that sometimes are spinning out of control that we just dismiss or don't care to think about. In Matthew 18, it talks about church discipline and it talks about how God behind the scenes is binding and loosing things in heaven for his church all the time. When someone is saved, for instance, there is a great celebration in heaven where the angels are rejoicing over that. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how we are called not to grieve The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who dwells in a significant way in the midst of his people. We're called not to grieve him. I think so many times people think of the Spirit of God as an it instead of a person. And they forget the fact that just as the disciples had Jesus with them every step of the way, we have the third person of the Trinity with us in a unique way every step of the way. And Paul is saying in general, don't quench the spirit of God. Don't grieve the spirit. Don't douse out the flame of the Holy Spirit. That's the word picture here. The spirit of God is likened to a fire, like the the pillars of fire that rested over the 120 at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which symbolized God's unique and special presence with the new covenant church. And we're called not to quench the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit with our disobedience, with our lack of sensitivity, with our lack of reverence, with our lack of dependence upon Him. I think we quench the Holy Spirit when we do not listen to the Spirit-inspired truth. We can douse the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we quench the Holy Spirit by making light of the truth or being rude or, or sarcastic when the Word of God is given to us. Well, Paul gives an example of this. He's saying, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. And in the early church, you had prophets who would stand up in services and they would be speaking the word of God in decency and in order. And you would have people who would need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what God was doing. And at the same time, discerning as to whether or not what was being said was true. That's the dynamic that was going on here in this context. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 actually lines out the plan for how this is supposed to be carried out in the local church. I believe that this phase in the church has passed with the closed canon of our Bibles. We have the 66 Bible Bible books of of the Bible, 39 in the old and 27 in the new. And I believe that the gift of prophecy is... Not happening today. But I believe that the gift of prophecy was happening in a significant way with Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets that built the foundation for the church. I build this out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. One example of prophets 
speaking in the midst of a church is actually in 1 Thessalonians. We've covered this before. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, and And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Prophets, when they would speak, they were speaking inspired scripture, the word of God. And the New Testament wasn't completed yet, so you'd have a prophet come to come to town or be in the midst of a flock and would instruct the church as to what the church was supposed to do. And this instruction was inspired and to be embraced as such. You say, how does this relate to us today? Well, we have the word of God that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And these words are preserved for us so that when someone speaks the truth, or someone gives their opinion about the truth, whether in a one-on-one, in a preaching setting, or a teaching setting, it is your opportunity and obligation to discern whether or not what someone is saying is true or truth. Now, you may even believe that the gift of prophecy is still happening today, but the same method and model would apply to you there as well. You need to use the Word of God as a grid to understand Is this a word from the Lord or not? We have the truth. We have the truth that gives us the opportunity to be discerning. Turn over to uh, first, actually, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21 is where Peter is addressing this very issue. And I believe talking in terms of the transition from the gift of prophecy to the prophetic word that we have in our Bibles. That is our prophetic word. Peter is talking about his experience where he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was witnessing the brilliant glory of Jesus Christ and hearing in his ears the affirmation and testimony from the Father, where the Father was saying, this is my beloved Son and do what he tells you to do. And in this context, Peter says this, and we have something more sure, verse 19, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What Peter's saying is, look, I heard the voice of God, but you have your Bibles. That's what he's saying. I heard the voice of God, and that was an incredible experience, but you have a prophetic word made more sure. Why is that? Because these are black words frozen on white pages for us. This this is the unmovable, unshakable, once for all, delivered faith given to you. It's the word of God. So often people look to experience to replace the truth of Scripture if we would only return to our Bibles and realize that we have a prophetic word made more sure. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have the prophecy of Scripture We have the prophecy of scripture. We have a more sure word. And you have an anointing from God to be able to discern what is truth and what is errant. I've heard it said, you you know if someone is speaking for God or not, if they're biblical. If they're biblical. Look at 1 John chapter 2. It says that all believers have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And in this context, the anointing is talking about being able to discern between true teachers, and false prophets. 1 John chapter 4 is where the writer says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit or teaching, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What was going on there is people were saying, look, Jesus, you know, he was... This one, this being sent from God, and uh, yes, he was Jesus of Nazareth, but when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he became more of a sort of untouchable, phantom-like creature. 
being who, who was perfect because God in some way, you know, made Jesus of Nazareth perfect. And so it's more of a mystical Jesus, almost to the point where people were beginning to say, so Jesus couldn't at that point have been physically um, in the flesh because flesh is actually so evil and, and gross like my flesh. And so Jesus couldn't have been like that. And so John's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is the God-man, and you're messed up in your thinking, and you have the Holy Spirit who can guide you to the truth of this. And he says, test the teachings, test the spirits, because you know that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh, come in the flesh, is from God. In other words, you know the true gospel because the Spirit of God leads you to know the true gospel. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so, don't sell yourself short. You're like the art curator in the basement. Somebody shows up and says, look, look at this. And you have the mind of Christ. You have the spiritual discernment to be able to say, you know, that's right on, or, you know, there's something wrong there. And I need to study the scripture to see what's wrong and to know the truth. You're like the art curator. Again, when the drape cloth is removed, you look into someone's soul and you say, you know what, I think that person needs me to say this to them from scripture. They need a little bit of admonition. They need some encouragement. That This person needs hope. You don't have to be a professional person to do that. All the better to be a lay person in the body of Christ, helping the body of Christ as we do this together. All right, the fourth and final category is discern how you approach evil. We have to discern others. We have to discern our private worship. We have to discern our public worship. And then you've got to discern how to approach evil. What is Paul saying here? This is a verse, by the way, that's, I think, been misused based on its earlier Translation from the King James Version. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Now the King James Version interprets this, abstain from all appearances of evil. Have you ever heard of people saying, look, you know, you can't do that because that has an appearance of evil. You can't wear that, you can't go there, you can't participate in that, you can't recreate in that way, you can't swim in that pool, you can't, you know, and so because it has the appearance of evil, it looks like the world. Well, if you look at the kind of pure text, really, the ESV and the New American Standard and the New King James Version gets it right. Abstain from every form of evil. What Paul's saying here is abstain or guard yourself from every species of evil, every category of evil. Actually, the Bible is going deeper than appearances, right? It's saying, look, we're not talking about appearances of evil. We're talking about evil. Any kind of evil you need to abstain from. You need to keep yourself from. You say, well, I need people to guide me in my choices. Well, yes, There is wisdom in the abundance of counselors, and I agree with that. But don't undersell the fact that you have discernment from God. And you can know the difference between right and wrong. All right, here's a few take-home points. First of all, number one, these are written in sort of a hard-hitting fashion to reflect the 14 commands that I've just gone through. Biblical propositional commands fly in the face of relativism. What is relativism? That's, that's where people say, look, what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. So I'll leave you to yourself, but you know, I'm going to cut my own path in what I do and how I live my Christian life. Um, it's the idea where you're talking to somebody and you just say, you know, we're going to agree to disagree, and, and you know, what's truth for you is your truth, and what's truth for me is my truth. That's relativism. The Bible gives us propositions. They're clear statements about right and wrong. And we need to hold fast to the Word of God. Where the Word of God is specific and clear, we need to be specific and clear. Where things are left up to the white spaces, then that's fine as well. But biblical propositional commands, they cut through the spirit of our age. We have truth. All right, number two. Biblical propositional commands fly in the face of emotionalism. Nothing wrong with being emotional or having emotions. 
We're not stoic computers. But people will say, look, I feel this way or I feel that way, and so I'm going to live this way or think that way. And it's based on feelings. And what we need to do is put feelings in the caboose and let the Word of God be the engine. Propositions, these staccato-like rapid-fire commands are given to fly in the face of emotion-driven thinking. That's why we have truth. That's why we have propositions. And so much of even evangelicalism is riding the emotional train away from clear obedience. Number three, biblical propositional commands simplify life choices. What's the will of God? Well, verse 18, the will of God is that we give thanks in all circumstances. It's just propositional truth. It tells us clearly how to live, how to think, and what to do. It takes skill to live it out. It takes counsel sometimes to flesh out what obedience looks like in certain situations. I understand that. But we dare not deny ourselves the simplicity of God's word. Appealing to God's word as a third party in the sea of emotion and relativism. Saying, look, let's just appeal to the Bible. Let's just stop for a second and go to the Bible. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Number four, by not discerning others, private worship, public worship, and evil, you are not helping and possibly hurting the body of Christ. Again, the call is for us to do this together because we need each other to be rounded out and to be spiritually healthy. Number five, heeding these 14 simple commands in some measure makes you wise. You say, I'm not wise. If you knew my life, you know I'm not wise. Well, the scripture says that it makes wise the simple. And spiritually speaking, you're wiser than most if you're following God's word. It's not a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of humility. God's word, it helps us think. And it helps us help each other. Let's be the art curator, not the expert. Let's just follow God's word in its simplicity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the Bible. And I pray, God, that we would read it. And not read it just to read through it, but read it to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close this evening, or this morning, I should say.